Okay, this morning, with our message, we're wrapping up our relationship series. Just to kind of recap briefly, uh, we started with a series back in, uh, right before Thanksgiving, where we just talked about... This is a time of year when we get together with people. It's a time of year when, when we see friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and people you go to church with. And for a lot of us, that's a cool thing. But also for most of us, there's also that tricky, tough, difficult, hard relationship that I don't know if I really want to get together with them. So we talked about just the holidays. We get together. More than that, we talked at the real heart of this series is God is a relational God. He lives within the context of relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He transforms us through the person of Jesus. That's the Christmas message. And as we transform, we spill out and our relationships transform. So we've just been talking about relationships and we've been talking about how to do them well. Our prayer has been, and I hope that you have found meaningful this series, and I hope that you have taken away our, Chris and I really as we put this together, really prayed fervently that there would just be some practical tools, some things that you get the heart of relationship, but you've also been able to walk away with some things to do and understand to help you in your relationships, especially those that are messy. Now, as we kind of wrap up, I want to kind of end with the heart and really the emphasis of of this whole thing. And to kind of get us going there, one of the things that... I I keep in my journal. I I journal regularly. And one of the things, I have a page in my journal. Every journal, every year, I keep one page dedicated to thinking about things that are true of all people through all times, no matter who they are, what they are, what point of history they've come from. I look for those principles that shape humanity, that are true for everyone at all times. And one of the things that I have journaled a couple years ago, I wrote this down. One of my observations through humanity is that our most all-inspiring moments are moments where we are drawn outside of ourselves onto a grand stage. Really think about your biggest, most awe-inspiring wow moments. The moments where you have the tingling of your spine, where you get super excited, you're stoked, you want to relive it forever. Those moments are oftentimes moments that I have learned where we're drawn outside of ourselves onto a bigger stage and we're not consumed with ourselves. Now, a couple examples in my life. Some of you know this. In 1995, I got to go to the Super Bowl. Now, I am a diehard football fan. I always have been a diehard football fan. So to be at the Super Bowl was a cool experience for me. But I will never forget when Kathy Lee Gifford sang the national anthem that year. Not a particular fan of Kathy Lee Gifford. Wasn't a great national anthem. But it was moving, nonetheless. She hits the final crescendoed note. All around the stadium, there are fireworks exploding, the cameras are flashing, and then all of a sudden, down across the stadium comes the fighter planes and the sonic boom. And I turned to my dad, who was there with me. We're only about 20 rows off the field between the 25 and 30-yard line. I turned to my dad, and I am weeping like a little baby. Now, what was it about that event that drew me in? It wasn't because, oh, look at Adam Nagel. He is at the Super Bowl. I wasn't even thinking about myself. What I was so moved by is here I am pulled out onto this huge stage that I've only dreamed of seeing and being a part of. I think of other things. Maybe you can really think of yours where you've been those big wow moments. I think of times where I've seen the Swiss Alps um, in person, the French and then the Swiss Alps. And mind-blowing. I just stood there and looked and I was like, my, it just blew my mind. I think of the time that 
Um, for the very first time, Tanya and I took our whole family on a vacation without the help of other people, meaning it was just us, our family, no one else. Now, to do that, we were in a very, very tight budget, so we got this little, tiny, dinky cabin in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. But again, never forget it. We go ahead. They wanted to see the mountains, so we took them to the biggest mountain we could get to in that area, which was Whiteface Mountain, 5,500 feet above sea level, which those of you who have been out west know that that's still tiny. But we... we go up this mountain, we get up to the top, you go 400 feet into the mountain, this chiseled path all the way back to the mountain. You take an elevator to the summit then. And as we got to the summit and we walk out there, I'll never forget Tanya having to constantly keep our kids, the mother hen, pulling all the kids back because they all wanted to look over this cool edge and look out at this magnificent, gorgeous picture of the Adirondack Mountains, Lake Placid, etc., And I remember standing there with my kids around me, Tanya there, just going, wow. But it was a moment where I wasn't consumed with myself. I was pulled outside of myself onto a much bigger stage. Now, I've learned about, I've seen this happen in life over and over. We resonate with this. But one of the things I've learned is we miss this principle in relationships. What I do too often with relationships is make them about me. But I want you to think about your most awe-inspiring moments, not just in life, but your relational moments. Weren't they moments or aren't they moments where there wasn't a whole lot made of you, but you were drawn outside of yourself into something bigger? I think of my wedding day. I think of the day when I stood in the front of a church and I watched my beautiful, gorgeous bride round that final corner and I catch her eye and I'm up here swaying, going back and forth. Everyone thought I was going to fall over. There are tears coming down my eyes and I catch her eyes and I see her coming. And it was, I wish I could freeze that moment in time. But what it wasn't about me. It was drawn into the bigger picture of everything that's going on and all the pageantry of that event and the excitement of I am committing myself to this woman and we are putting on display our commitment and our love for everyone here gathered with us. I think of the birth of my son, another relational moment that wasn't about me. I'm there in that birthing room and you guys know my, some of you have been here, Bethany, know that that whole childbirth thing is not real exciting to me. They look funny. They're covered with stuff. They're... I did not want to cut the cord. It's just I'm not into blood and all that stuff. But I'll never forget when I'm there in that room and the miracle of life takes place and they pull this little boy out and they take him up and begin to place him up on Tanya's chest covered with all that stuff. I remember myself just being moved deeply. We didn't know it was going to be a boy. And I remember hearing that doctor say, it's a boy. And I remember looking down at my wife and I remember her looking up at me and saying, sweetie, we have a little boy. And I remember crying. I remember being pulled out on this bigger stage of life. And it wasn't about me. I wasn't consumed with me, but I was moved and I was all inspired. I would have loved to have frozen that moment in time. See, we get this in life, but I'm afraid so often we forget this in our relationships. And what we begin to do is we make our relationships more about me. And this morning, as we end this series, one of the things I really want to drive home is life is not about me. Now, here's the thing. As soon as I say that, life is not about Adam Nagel. Life is, put your name in there. Life is not about, put your name in there. But here's the cool thing. It's also, though it's not about me, it's also not about you. What do I mean by that? What I fear happens sometimes is in relationships, take a marriage, and I say, my life is not about me. Well, then it must be about my wife. 
So I live to please and serve my wife. Or my life isn't about me, it's about Bethany. So I live to serve and please you. Life's not about me, but it's also not about you. I've run into people pleasers who are constantly serving other people. And they're doing just as much damage to their relationship as the person who is living for themselves. Life's not about me, it's also not about you. What it really is all about, life is all about, and our relationships are all about the glory and enjoyment of God. It's about you and me living together in relationship to accomplish God's purposes on this earth. To enjoy him, to see his glory, to see his greatness, to be drawn outside onto the bigger stage of what he is doing in life. That's what my relationships are about. To cooperate with him in what he wants to do and wants to accomplish. And to grow and become more like him is what relationships are really about. Chris started this series a number of weeks back. And one of the things that he said is we are created and were created for relationships. The God that we serve is a relational God. I'm not going to rehash it, but if you, ter- if you look in your Bible, maybe this week, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, when God makes man, it's relational. Right out of the gates, he says, let us make man in our image. Us and our are relational terms, are they not? Let us. Who's he talking about? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, working together in the context of relationship to make man. Let us make man in our image. Then he goes on, he says, let us make them male and female, he says. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female. So you take now a man and a woman, and you put them together to make the complete whole picture of the image of God. Again, relational. And then he goes on and he says, here's the cool part. He says, now I want you to subdue and rule the earth in my absence. And I want you to increase and multiply and fill the earth. Relational. Come together. Have babies. Spread my name and my image all over the earth. It's all about him. Then you come to Genesis chapter 2. Again, relational. What does God do with Adam? He says, I've got a job for you, Adam. I want you to sit here and I'm going to bring all these animals to you. He brings all these animals and one by one they come and they come as a what? How do they come? As a pair. You have the male zebra and the female zebra. Uh, some of it, I think this would be a cool deal. Wouldn't it be cool to be Adam and sit there and pick all the names for the... I mean, he was a creative guy. Zebra. Here comes the lion. I think I'll call him a lion. A hippo. I mean, he got to pick all these cool names as these animals come. But the thing that was happening is they're coming relationally. And what does God say? The one thing that he says is not good of all of the things that he made is what? It's not good that you are alone. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, he looks down at Adam and he says, I am going to make you a, some of you know the term, a helper, suitable for you, relational. Now, see, some have mixed this word up and some think, well, my wife is a helper, so she's given to me to work for me, to help get the job done, to clean the house, to do all the chores, to work for me. But that's not what the term is. The term helper is the exact same word that God uses for himself in the Psalms. Multiple references, that word is used to talk about fellow companionship, coming alongside of and uniting with to be a companion. So right away, and Chris talked about some of this and... and On that first week, as we live in the context of relationship, the God that we serve is a relational God. We were designed and created and put together for relationship. 
Now, you know Genesis chapter 3 happens, those of you who know the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, sin, bad stuff, it's now in the world. It's all around us. We're all sinners, it says. And one of the things that happens is because of sin, our relationships are messed up. Every one of our relationships, even your best relationship, has problems in it. We don't have a perfect relationship. So we've been talking about how to get them right, how to fix them, how to do them well. One of the things that John Calvin says, whenever you talk about, he said, I should say, he's long dead. But one of the things that he said, that when you are going to do relationships well or anything, if you're going to adjust the errors, he says, for errors can never be uprooted from human hearts until a true knowledge of God is planted therein. Now, on your um, uh, note sheet, there's also a quote there. I want to goes right along with this quote. And I put it there for you because it's a long one. I didn't want to put it up in the screen. I want you to have it when you go home. I think it has profound stuff to say about relationships. It's by Ted Tripp, or uh, Tim Lane and Paul David Tripp, who uh, wrote a book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Great book worth reading on relationships. And he says this. It says, if there are problems in your relationships, the solution starts with God. Typically, we start with what we want. But starting with yourself and your own perceived wants and needs will bring you into collision with another person doing the same thing. So if you stop there and pause, we get what he's saying? If you make your relationships about what you want, if I make my relationship about what I want and Tanya makes her relationship about what she wants, guess what's going to happen? We're going to collide. We're going to have World War III at some point in our family. Because it's she's about her and I'm about me and we both want our needs met. It doesn't work, they say. So it says it will bring doom to the relationship. He goes on and says, only when we start with God, someone bigger than ourselves, can we escape the destructive results of our own selfishness. Human relationships are most satisfying when we enter them not just to please ourselves or even the other person, but to please God. The circle of human community is only healthy when it exists within the larger circle of community with God. So as we end this series, the heart that I want us to get is it's not about me. It's not even about you. It's about living within the context of us in the picture of God's purposes. And I want to be a part of what he is doing in human history. It's not about me. Now, there's a cool Old Testament story that I think illustrates this better than any story in the Bible. If you turn with me there, the book of Genesis, if you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, uh, Genesis is an easy one to find. It's right at the very beginning of your Bible. Or if you have your smartphone, that was my Christmas gift, by the way. My wife got me a Android, uh, Samsung, and whatever, I don't know. Some of you techie people would get, probably get all wound up and knowing what it is, but it's a cool 4G phone and... And now I can do this cool Bible thing on my phone too. So anyway, if you have your smartphone, you can find it there as well. Uh, But Genesis chapter 37. I want to lay the context of this story. Um, This story is honestly one of the most dysfunctional families in all the Bible. This family story is crazy. There's some dis... But here's the cool thing. (laughs) I think sometimes we misunderstand family and relationship. We look at focus on the family and what Jim Jobson did over the years and now Daly as he kind of takes, Jim Daly takes over that. And we look to this perfect picture of family. And you know what I've discovered? You don't find what they set forth as the perfect family anywhere in the pages of scripture. What we find more are stories like this with a lot of dysfunction mixed up in the middle of family. 
Now, I don't say that to put them down because they're doing a great work, and that is the ideal, what we all want to strive for. But most of us live more, a little closer to what we see here. The context of this story, before we look at the, the exact chapter, you had a guy named Jacob. He was born with a brother named Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau technically was older because he came out of the womb first. So he was the older son. Now, Jacob was an absolute homebody. He got a lot of man points taken away from him. I think Jacob and I probably would have related at times. He lost a lot of man points. He hung out with his mom a lot. He cooked, he cleaned, he did all the inside house stuff. He was kind of a mama's boy. Esau on the flip side, we see is a real man's man. He's an outdoorsman. He hunts, he gathers, he works hard. He's probably got rough, tough skin. He's a real man's man. And he goes at it, gets all kinds of man points. Now, Jacob was a real deceiver. And Jacob worked up, cooks up this plan with the help of his mom to get the birthright of the older son. So basically he comes to his dad and he tricks him and he says, and he ultimately walks away from the family with the inheritance and the birthright and that which is given to the oldest son. He now has it. The namesake carries forward now with Jacob. Total trickery. He then steps out, fast forward the story. He comes to a place um, away from his home where he meets a woman named Rachel. He is in love with Rachel the minute he sees her. The scriptures speak of Rachel as being beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Now, when the Bible says a woman is gorgeous, I can't imagine what she really must look like. She probably puts most of our supermodels to great shame. But the Bible says she is a beautiful girl. Now, she has a sister named Leah. Her sister, the Bible says, has weak eyes. So in other words, translation, she's ugly. Jacob's not drawn to her. She's not attractive. So what ends up happening, Jacob comes to these two sisters, comes to their dad named Laban, and it says, Laban, I would like to marry Rachel. That's cool. Work for me for seven years. Deal. I got it. I'll do it. Works for seven years. Now, here's where the story really gets cool. <laughs> this, I can't get my head around this. They have the wedding day. They go into the tent to do their married thing. We have kids in the room, so I won't say any more about that. He wake up the next morning. The sunlight, I'm sure, appears in the, you know, they don't have electricity then, so it's all candles and sunlight. Sunlight comes up the next day. He rolls over in bed, and to his horror, he is in bed with the older sister, Leah, not Rachel. Tragedy. He's like, I've been tricked. So now he has, he just got married to someone he didn't want to be married to. So he comes back to Laban. He's all upset. And Laban says, well, I got you now. Work seven more years and you can have Rachel too. So now he gets free labor for another seven years. But the Bible says, he says, hey, I'll do it because I'm so in love with this girl. And it says those seven years seem but just a small little period of time because he was so in love with her. So he walks away from this situation now with two wives. Now you have to keep in mind now, two wives is never a good idea to begin with. I don't know how they did it. I don't know quite frankly how anyone could do it. Um, really loving one is not exactly the easiest thing some days and not nothing against my wife at all. Just, I want to, I mean, I can't imagine trying to keep two happy and satisfy two. And it just, it, it is what it is. So he's got these two wives. And now the real trick though, is one of them is the one that he wanted. And the other is kind of the outcast, but God does something now is they begin having children. Leah has lots of kids. Rachel is infertile. She cannot have, it says in the Bible, her womb was closed. So here he is, Jacob, married to two women. The one that he does not like is having all kinds of kids, where the one that he's really in love with is having no children. It's causing all kinds of marital tension between the sisters. I mean, it's a mess. Finally, finally, as Jacob gets old in years, 
A child is born to Rachel. His name is, for the kids in the room, you know him, is the guy with the coat with many colors, Joseph. Joseph is now born. So if you picture this now, if you are Jacob and you now have these two wives, lots of kids over here and one child finally born to this one, what happens? I'm going to favor this child. That's what he does. Pick up with me at Genesis chapter 37. This is a messy story. Genesis chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob, Joseph, a young man of 17. So Joseph is now 17 years old. He's a teenager. When tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Let's just pause here. You get what's happening? I mean, we, as a parent, I deal with this. I don't know if some of you parents may deal with this. The child that comes running inside, mommy, 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 daddy, daddy, daddy. And they go through on this whole thing. They want to tattle and tell you all the horrible things that someone else did. Some of you who have raised kids could help me probably process that a little better than what I do right now. But that's what's happening. Joseph runs inside to tattle on his family. He is, you can begin to see this relationship that exists between he and his father. Now, now Israel, who's another name for Jacob, Israel loved Joseph. It just flat out says it in the Bible. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. The coat of many colors as it's become the known. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now picture the family dynamic here. Here you've got the younger brother to the chosen wife coming and tattling and and working himself into the good graces of the dad. And you've got the dad clearly favoring and demonstrating it by putting together this expensive, beautiful garment to give to him. And now you've got the older brothers who are all saying, we hate this guy. So much so that the Bible says not one kind word was spoken to Joseph. Joseph bears the brunt of this. Now, if you continue reading, verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, look at this, they hated it all the more. Joseph had a real gift. Joseph was a dreamer. He was a visionary. God gave him dreams and spoke to him through dreams. And, and so he has this dream. He comes and he lays it out. Now, here's what the dream was. He said to them, listen to this dream I had, verse 7. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, his brothers said to him, verse 8, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Verse 9. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Now, I don't know why Joseph is doing this very honestly. I I mean, it's like, dude, keep your mouth shut. I mean, just, you have the dreams, keep them to yourself. I mean, you're not doing yourself any favors, but he has this other dream and he goes to him and he says this, this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Verse 10, when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him and his But his father, the end of the verse, it says this, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, it's interesting here. I want to just make a few comments about the dynamics that are kind of unfolding. 
I think what you have in a lot of ways, Chuck Swindoll, who's a pastor and author and well-respected in the Christian community, Chuck Swindoll in his book on Joseph kind of talks about it like this. He says, really, Joseph was a spoiled brat in a lot of ways. What you really had was a dad who was very passive, who was passive-aggressive, very manipulative in Jacob. And what Chuck Swindoll makes a comment is that any time a passive man becomes a father, what he always does is favors the easiest child to raise. He picks a child. Now, what ends up happening then is the favored child becomes to be a little too big for their britches. Their heads get a little big and they get quite proud because daddy has chosen me. Now, his brothers, though, are not convinced. Now, if you're in this family, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Are you happy just having your dad's approval? When you come to relationships, what do you really want? Just daddy and mommy's approval? You want the brothers to like you. And I think if I read between the lines of the story, probably that's what he's doing with his dream. He's probably running them. He, he uses his dream, I think, in a lot of ways to leverage himself and to kind of put himself out there. He couldn't earn his favor with his brothers, so he's going to try and force it and say, I am someone. I am something. I have something to offer. Now, in a lot of ways, what you really have at this point, in my opinion, is Joseph is kind of in some ways consumed with himself. He's been set up for it. He's been set up to fail, but he's really focused on himself. And in essence, in my opinion, what he really does is he buys into one of the fatal flaws of human relationship. And this, this flaw is one that will kill, kill any relationship. And it's basically this, that you can change your relationships without changing yourself. This flaw undermines all relational. If you have problems in a relationship, what a lot of times we have this tendency to do is to come to that relationship and think, I want this relationship to change. This relationship is not good. So to get this relationship better, you have to change. It's the flaw. It'll kill every relationship. If I really want my relationships to be good, no matter how terrible that other person may be. I've got to begin to deal with myself. And Joseph doesn't do that real well here. Instead, he projects himself out there all the more to say, look at me. You're going to bow down to me one day. He's, he's, he's just trying to force himself through. And I think it makes a real mess of things. Now, if you fast forward the story, what ends up happening, Joseph's brothers decide then we're going to kill this guy. We've had enough of this. He's done. So they decide they're going to kill him. One of the brothers finally speaks up and says, not so fast. Let's, let's maybe sell him. So what they do is they sell him now as a slave into Egypt. Try and put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's chosen. I mean, he didn't pick this life. He didn't ask his dad to favor him. But his dad favored him. All his brothers hate him. He is now sold into slavery away from those he loves. Now, if you follow, I'm going to fast forward. I'm not going to get into too much detail of the story, but ultimately he's promoted out of slavery. He gets a very high position. He's then demoted with some wrongful accusations. He ends up in prison. He's in and out of prison through this whole time. He finally gets back to a place where he is now second in command of all of the nation of Egypt. It's crazy. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Flip forward a few pages. What's happening here now, too, I'm going to fast forward again through some of this story. What's happening here now, too, is there was this horrible famine in all the land. Now, God and through God speaking to Joseph, Joseph in visions and dreams, as well as Joseph's, I think, he, had, he was a great leader and he had a lot of growth through this time. Joseph has the nation and through God's help has the nation of Egypt set up with great success. So there's this terrible famine. It's all throughout the 
region. And so it extends down or up into uh, the nation of Canaan and Israel, where um, Jacob says to his brothers, Joseph's brothers, head down to Egypt and get some grain for us. Now they head down to Egypt. And as they get there, Joseph recognizes them right away. Here comes my brothers. Now, it's kind of interesting to watch the family stuff unfold. Jacob was a deceiver. He was then deceived. And now you have Joseph in the story, deceives his brothers. And he puts a silver cup and he plants all this stuff on him. What he's really trying to do, instead of coming right out and saying, I am Joseph, he wants them to come to him with their younger brother, Benjamin, who's still at home, and the dad. So he sets this up. Here, pick up the story then on chapter 45. So he works this plot and he can't contain it any longer. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, Have everybody leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. So imagine he says, Guys, I'm Joseph. He probably takes off the Egyptian garb and he, look at what verse 2 says. Relation, look, think of the relation. We're talking about relationships. Think of verse 2 now. And he wept. He wept. So loud that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. He breaks down. And he says, guys, I'm your brother. I am the guy that you sold as a slave. Put yourself in his shoes. The emotion that must be running through his heart, coursing through his veins. What do you do? What do you say as you're Joseph? Pick this up in verse 3. This is unbelievable what he does and what he says. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. First thing he wants to know, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Why are they terrified? What do they realize? I imagine they're probably thinking back, oh my goodness. He had that dream many years ago. He's now, is this ruler? We are going to bow down to him and he can kill us. I mean, the tables have radically turned and they get it and they are scared. So look at the story, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it, look at what he says. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. I want you to try and put yourself into the worst thing that's ever happened to you relationally. The worst thing that's ever happened to you relationally. I'm going to take a guess that it probably is not quite as bad as being sold as a slave by your siblings. It might be. Some of you are here and may have a very tragic story. But look at what he says to his brothers. Now, this is amazing as you keep reading this. It gets even deeper. Look at verse 6. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God, look at this again. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, guys... Abraham, our father, was told that the nation of Israel was going to bless all nations. We were told that there's going to be a Messiah to come through the nation of Israel, our lineage. And if I was not here, our family and our lineage would be wiped off the face of the earth and that Messiah would never make it. 
So there's this remnant, a called out, a select few of people that is left. And God orchestrated this all beautifully through you selling me as a slave. He doesn't say you sold me. He says what? God sent me here. His perspective on this broken relationship is that God working is working out his purpose and his plan that is so much bigger than what they can grasp and understand. Verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. But God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Crazy story. If you don't have this verse memorized, I would encourage you to stick this one in your memory. This is one of the classic old Testament verses. This is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. What happens is they go back and they get his father. And when they come back, the brothers are still scared to death. This guy is still deceiving. He's setting up a plot. He is going to kill us. So they come to him again and say, Joseph, we're just going to be real honest. We're scared. We're fearful. In verses 19 and 18 kind of say that. Um, So Joseph says this again to kind of end the story. You intended to harm me. Now look at this. This is just, I have a hard time getting my head around this truth. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for what? Good. What you did is evil. Selling me as a slave, thinking of killing me, God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Physical lives through food and the fact that you have saved the lineage that is going to ultimately produce Jesus Christ to save all of mankind. You have saved me. You have saved us. Now, as I think about this story, what he's really saying is God has his hand in this mess. He's saying God's got his hand here. See, I think a lot of times we often think that if God really cared for you and for me, if he cared for Adam Nagel, he would make our relationships easier. In reality, I want you to really try and I try and get my head around this. In reality, a difficult relationship is a mark of his love and care. Hard relationships sometimes are a mark of his love and care. In messy relationships, you know what happens? Our hearts are revealed, our weaknesses are exposed, and we start coming to the end of ourselves. Only when this happens do we reach for the help that only God can provide. When a relationship is tough, it empties us of us every time. And what ends up happening, I want to borrow a quote again from this book I referenced earlier. Weak and needy people finding their hope in Christ's strength are what mark a mature relationship. Your relationship isn't mature because you've been together for 13, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Your relationship is only mature when it's marked by hope in Christ's grace. The most dangerous aspect of your relationship is not your weakness, but your delusion of strength. Self-reliance is almost always a component of a bad relationship. Always. I think of his brothers. His brothers are now at this place to be, have the relationship restored. Where are his brothers? 
Are his brothers strong and mighty at this point in the story? They're weak and needy. And they recognize their weakness. They recognize we're going to be killed. This guy can wipe us out. Joseph has already come through his weak and needy place. He was in and out of jail. He's been there. Now they here they come together, both emptied of themselves and realizing God's bigger picture for their lives and dependent upon him. See, in the process of working through the mess, intimacy is also found. Take the relationship in your mind right now that means the most to you, where you are the most intimate. I'm going to venture a guess. It's probably the relationship that you've worked through the most difficulty. See, the surface relationships, when difficulty arises, what do we do? I don't need this. I'll move on. But when difficulty arises between my wife and I, do I have that choice? I'll move on. I guess I could. But I don't want to. I desire to honor God and his word, and I made a commitment to her. So when difficulty arises, when it does, guess what? I push through. And we develop intimacy. I empty myself of me. I'm weak. I depend on him is the process that takes place. Joseph has grown tremendously. He's a completely different guy by this point in the story than he was. And his brothers are about to become different guys as well. The beauty of messy relationships is that we grow. Because what ends up happening, I can't control you and you can't control me. And we're in a relationship. Guess who's the only person that can ultimately work in my heart? Jesus. So when I begin to walk with you in relationship and it's difficult, I can't control another human being. So I begin to call out and ask God for help. We empty ourselves of us. I'd also say this. It's impossible to grow in isolation. You need people to grow. I want you to think about this. I hear people talk about the Bible. All I need is the Bible and God and the Holy Spirit. I say that's garbage. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. If all you have is the Bible, the spirit of God, and you go sit in a hole somewhere, you are not going to be able to tell me that you are intimate with God. Think of the fruits of the spirit. Let's just pick one of them. Patience. So you open this book up and you read and you talk to God and you cry and you weep and you're moved and the spirit of God is doing some cool things. And you're going, my goodness, God, I'm patient. Patience is so important. Do you know that you're patient if you're sitting in a hole all by yourself for your entire life? Where is patience tested and tried? In the context of relationship. It's relationship is a gift to us for God to say, Adam, I want you to be like me. I want you to be a part of my purposes and my plans. So I'm going to interject you in people's lives and I'm going to put people in your lives and you're going to rub. And it's going to get messy at times because you're both sinners. Grace is present too, but you're also both sinners. And we grow in the context of relationship. I can't grow in isolation. God may do some things. I may have some God moments here and there. But people that tell me that they're passionately in love with God, but yet they don't interact with people, (laughs) they're deceived. What they have with God is not real intimacy. They have some, (laughs) I'm not sure what they have, very honestly, some days. I used to be there too, so that's why this is such a passionate issue with me. As Joseph matures and changes, he learns to see the bigger picture. And I think what he really gets is the opportunity is now here for the relationship with his brothers to change. And Joseph really kind of walks away from this fatal flaw because he's a new person. And the relationship, I think, can change. As I think about relationships, another thing why relationships are so important. You have not become who you are all by yourself. 
Joseph didn't get to where he is because of his great and mighty work. Potiphar recognized him, the leader in the nation of Egypt. Potiphar elevated him to the position of authority that he was in. I think of my time at SuperValue. I related to the story of Joseph a lot because here I was out of ministry. I was clinging to just find life in any way that I could. I wasn't sure what was becoming of my marriage and my kids and who was I as a father and a husband. I'm no longer a pastor. I'm working third shift in a, in a job that is in a hard, hard physical job in a refrigerated warehouse. I'm hating every minute of it. And here I am feeling like I've been isolated and stuck off in the world. As time progresses there, though, I remember going there many a times, and I remember reading Genesis and the story of Joseph a lot and just saying, God, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your purpose is, but I'm going to trust it. I'm going to trust it, and I'm going to work really hard. But I look at and think about this principle of who I've become. I ultimately left there in a supervisory role and position. And people have looked at me and said, well, Adam, it's because of your hard work. It's because you did this. It's because you did that. It's because you, you, you. And I say, you know what? It's really not because of me. It happens to be because one night I was sitting at break. I went to break late, and that's a big no-no. You're always to be on the floor, and if you're outside of your work environment when it's not break time, you can get written up. And here I was. I, I, I was a hard night. I worked right through break. I didn't realize it, so I went to break late, and I thought, well, you have this headset and this percentage. I thought, I'll make the time up. I'm okay. I need a break right now because my body is hurting. So I go up and take this break, but in the context of this, if you get written up, I'm working towards my raises. I want that top almost $20 an hour, and I knew I had to do it to survive. I had to pay for our bills. And if you get written up, you go right back to week one, and you've got 10 weeks to get up to that top rate. So I'm almost there. I go in this break, and I'm sitting down, and in walks a supervisor. I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm dead. I I wanted to cry right in the spot. I thought I wanted to decide, do I get up and run and try and pretend like hopefully he doesn't see me? But it's clear he makes eye contact, and what ends up happening, his name was Rick. Rick comes over and sits down with me. And Rick was a cool supervisor. Rick wasn't someone who was just hammering the rules. He says he wanted to know why I was there first. And I told him, I said, Rick, I'll be honest with you. I was just honest. I said, I've been hurting. My body hurts tonight. I worked through break. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't realize I just came up here to get a drink of water and a candy bar. He starts talking with me. He says, Adam, tell me your story. So I tell him my story. A relationship was formed. Guess what? His position was the position I ultimately occupied. In a few weeks, they were looking for someone to begin to transition into a leadership role there. And because of the relationship that happened, so I look at where I got in the super value world. It wasn't because of my great hard work. It was because of the relationships that I had with other people. The way God worked and orchestrated and brought things together. I look at the churches that I've served in. Bethany, here, I'm here, not because of anything great that I've done, but because of some people that I know and in relationship with recommended me to this church. And again, the relational stuff that happens, we've become who we are, not by ourselves, but with other people. I guarantee you, any, you just look at where you're at in life today. People helped get you there. As I think about relationship, as we kind of um, kind of just really have talked about, you know, it's about the glory and enjoyment of God. Our relationships are given as a gift to accomplish God's purposes, to grow us more like him. One of the things that we are very passionate about, people have asked me a lot, Adam, what does it mean to be successful as a pastor, as a church? And I've said, you know what, there's really one thing, and that's fulfilling the Great Commission. I want to fulfill the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. 
My desire is to see the church radically touch the community, reach people that are far from God, and make them disciples of Jesus Christ while we all grow up and mature together in the magnificent radiance and glory of God. My passion. So what happened last week was incredible to me. That is a huge win because we saw people far from God come into relationship with him, be adopted into the family of God. Now, people will then say to me, I believe with all my heart that you can quantitatively measure growth. I look at sports and football. How do you know who the winner is? The one who crosses the goal line the most, right? How do we know we win in the church? I think there's ways to measure whether we're winning or not. And it's not just in numbers. It's not just one of the ways to do it, in my opinion, is to put yourself out of a job. One of my passions as I think about reaching people far from God and helping them grow up is, number one, the first thing, and one of the things I am, I will die on this hill, is to get people feeding themselves. If you come to this church and you depend on what happens here on Sunday morning as your sole means of growth, my heart hurts for you. I don't want that to be the case. I would love for this body to say, we don't need to come to Sunday morning. Adam's messages are "Ah, so-so anyway, but what I really have is I have the word of God for myself. And I gathered in my small group this week, and we talked about, I mean, we're growing, and we're tearing this word apart, and we're really, man, this is for myself. That, to me, is a huge victory. So one of the passions that I've put that we as a leadership team has said, hey, let's do this and do it well. So we believe that reading plans are a helpful way to do this. So we all get on it together in the context of relationship. We read the Bible together. That way, when I come to one of you and you come to me, I can say, man, wasn't that passage this morning great? Or what did you get out of that? Or you know what? I read this. What on earth does that mean? Or, and we can work and grow together and hold each other accountable. So last year, we introduced a reading plan. We read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This year, we're going to do the same thing. Again, the goal is to reach out to people, see people come to Jesus and then grow up. And you grow up by learning to eat and feed and chew on this word for yourself. So we're going to do that. We're going to carry the theme of relationships. So we put together, it's in all of your worship folders or your bulletins this morning. It's a reading plan. It's all on relationship. Chris and I sat down and laid out plans. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians. We're going to go through Proverbs. We're going to uh, talk about loving God, about forgiveness, about hatred, about love and mercy and compassion, and all that the Bible has to say to chew on it for ourselves. Now, the other cool thing is that we've done is we've also put together a journal this year. I love journaling. Journaling is huge. And so we decided to take that same reading plan and lay it out in the context of a journal. Uh, where we have them all laid out in pages where then you can journal and keep track and take it to another level. Here's the cool thing. We decided to make this available. It is at a cost. Uh, we didn't want to give it away for free. I believe when you give things away, um, sometimes people take them and they go home and collect dust. Well, when you have to pay something for it, you're really going to use it. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is, is we put a lot of work. We had to send this to an outside source and have it published and printed in the whole nine yards. So there is a slight cost. All we're trying to do is cover. We aren't trying to make money. We're just trying to cover our cost on it. But we put together this journal. Almost one-third of you signed up, pre-ordered this thing. Now, to me, <laughs> that is amazing. That is really cool. But I want to encourage those of you that haven't um, to, to either take... To take this and bu- go buy a journal and really jump into this, this this year or pick one of these up. It's already put together for you and, um, again, read through. But what my heart is is to really d- dive deep into the Word of God for yourself. And you come across verses like this, and this is what I'll end with, just reading a, a verse. 
Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. Again, you talk about this could be a troubled relationship. So as you read this in the morning, your quiet time, you could, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills what? His purposes for me. So in the midst of this broken relationship, in the midst of this hurt and this pain, I'm not consumed with me. I'm not even consumed with you. I want to be consumed with what God is doing with me, with us. I want to be a part of this bigger picture of what he's doing. It's not about me. It's not even about you. It's about the glory and enjoyment of God. Our relationships are given as a gift to accomplish God's purposes and to grow us more like him. So the heart this year is to say, hey, let's do these things well to the glory and honor of God and grow together as a church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, as we've been uh, just talking over the last couple of weeks on relationship, uh, God, I pray that people have been encouraged, they've been challenged, they've been motivated, they've been refreshed to maybe uh, view the relationship in another light, in a new light. God, I think of the heart of this whole series is kind of what we ended with today. It's really not about me. Life isn't about me. It's not even about uh, the people I serve. It's about living for your glory, your honor, enjoying you, being drawn into the, what you are doing, your purposes and your plans. God, I think of relationships. You use them in a beautiful way. We're designed for them. We're put together to be in relationship. We are not wired to be isolated and alone. It's a lie to believe that I can grow close to you in isolation. Oh, you may speak to me. There may be a seed of spiritual growth there in my heart, but for it to really mature and grow deep, I've got to walk with others. So God, would we do these things called relationships well? Would we commit to them? not just for our own needs, but for your purposes and your plan and your bigger vision of what you want to accomplish. God, as as we as a body, as a people who believe and love Jesus, come together and work together and grow together and commit to relationships that you've put us together. God, it's amazing how we mature, how we grow, and how we ultimately, as a body, accomplish your purposes here on this earth. We saw it happen last week as people came together and worked together. People came to know Jesus. That's what we're all about. Seeing your plan, the great commission, go into all the world. Here in Terry Hill, East Earl, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, California, Mexico, the Philippines, Africa, all around the world, God, you want us to go and make disciples. Reach people that are far from Jesus and bring them close to you. And God, it happens ultimately by us doing relationships well, focused on your purposes and your heart, growing in the context of relationship. God, thank you so much for Bethany. Thank you that so many ways they get this. Uh, and God, I pray that you continue to encourage us this new year. Even I pray, that, I, pray that, <laughs> I pray that 90 plus percent of us would dive into this reading plan and really do it and with all of our heart and commit ourselves to growing in the word of God for ourselves and exploring what it means to really live well in relationships. Help us to do these things well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.